Chapter Seven of Prisoner for Blasphemy by George William Foote. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven at the Old Bailey. George William Foote, William James Ramsay, and Henry Arthur Kemp cried the clerk of the court at the Old Bailey. It was Thursday morning, March the first, eighteen eighty three, and as we stepped into the dock, the clock registered five minutes past ten. We were provided with chairs, and there were pens and ink on the narrow ledge before us. It was not large enough, however, to hold all my books, some of which had to be deposited on the floor, and fished up as I required them. Behind us stood two or three Newgate warders, who took quite a benevolent interest in our case. Over their heads was a gallery crammed with sympathisers, and many more were seated in the body of the court. Mr. Wheeler occupied a seat just below me, in readiness to convey any messages or hand me anything I might require. Between us and the judge were several rows of seats, all occupied by gentlemen in wigs, eager to follow such an unusual case as ours. Sir Harding Gifford lounged back with a well-practised air of superiority to the legal small fry around him, and near him sat Mr. Poland and Mr. Lewis, who were also retained by the prosecution. Justice North was huddled in a raised chair on the bench, and owing perhaps to the unfortunate structure of the article, it seemed as though he was being shot out every time he leaned forward. His countenance was by no means assuring to the prisoners. He smiled knowingly to Sir Harding Gifford, and treated us with an insolent stare. Watching him closely through my eyeglass, I read my fate so far as he could decide it. His air was that of a man intent on peremptorily settling a troublesome piece of business. His strongest characteristic seemed infallibility, and his chief expression omniscience. I saw at once that we would soon fall foul of each other, as in fact we did in less than ten minutes. My comportment was unusual in the old Bailey dock. I did not look timid or supplicating or depressed. I simply bore myself as though I were doing my accustomed work. That was my first offence. Then I dared to defend myself, which was a greater offence still, for his lordship had not only made up his mind that I was guilty, but resolved to play the part of prosecuting counsel. We were bound to clash, and, if I am not mistaken, we exchanged glances of defiance almost as soon as we faced each other. His look said, I will convict you and mine answered, we shall see. Sir Harding Gifford's speech in opening the case for the prosecution was brief, but remarkably astute. He troubled himself very little about the law of blasphemy, although the jury had probably never heard of it before. He simply appealed to their prejudices. He spoke with bated breath of our ridiculing the most awful mysteries of the Christian faith, he described our letterpress as an outrage on the feelings of a Christian community, which he would not shock public decency by reading, and our woodcuts as the grossest and most disgusting caricatures. And then, to catch any juryman who might not be a Christian, though perhaps a theist, he declared that our blasphemous libels would grieve the conscience of any sincere worshipper of the great God above us. This appeal was made with uplifted forefinger, pointing to where that being might be supposed to reside, which I inferred was near the ceiling. Sir Harding Gifford finally resumed his seat with a look of subdued horror on his wintry face. 
he tried to appear exhausted by his dreadful task so profound was the emotion excited even in his callous mind by our appalling wickedness it was well acted and must i fancy have been well rehearsed yet sir harding gifford is decidedly clever it is not accident that has made him legal scavenger for all the bigots in england mr poland and mr lewis then adduced the evidence against us i need not describe their performance it occupied almost two hours and it was nearly one o'clock when i rose to address the jury that would have been a convenient time for lunch but his lordship told me i had better go on till the usual hour as i had only been speaking about thirty minutes when we did adjourn for lunch i infer that his lordship was not unwilling to spoil my defence how different was the action of lord coleridge when he presided at our third trial in the court of queen's bench the case for the prosecution closed at one o'clock exactly as it did on our first trial at the old bailey but the lord chief justice of england with the instinct of a gentleman and the consideration of a just judge did not need to be reminded that an adjournment in half an hour would make an awkward break in our defence without any motion on our part he said if you would rather take your luncheon first before addressing the jury do so by all means mr ramsay who preceded me then had just risen to read his address after a double experience of judge north and two months imprisonment like a common thief under his sentence he was fairly staggered by lord coleridge's kindly proposal and i confess i fully shared his emotion sir harding gifford had grossly misled the jury on one point he told them that even in quote, our great indian dominions where christianity was by no means the creed of the majority of the population it had been found necessary to protect the freedom of conscience and the right of every man to hold his own faith by making criminal offenders of those who for outrage and insult thought it necessary to issue contumelious or scornful publications concerning any religious sect unquote in reply to this absolute falsehood i pointed out that the indian law did not affect publications at all but simply punished people for openly desecrating sacred places or railing at any sect in the public thoroughfare on the ground that such conduct tended to a breach of the peace and that under the very same law members of the salvation army had been arrested and imprisoned because they persisted in walking in procession through the streets under the indian law no prosecution of the freethinker could have been initiated and in support of this statement i proceeded to quote from a letter by professor w a hunter in the daily news judge north doubtless knew that i could cite no higher authority and seeing how badly his friend sir harding was faring he prudently came to his assistance interrupting me very uncivilly he inquired what professor hunter's letter had to do with the subject and remarked that the jury had nothing to do with the law of india then my lord i retorted i will discontinue my remarks on this point only expressing my regret that the learned counsel should have thought it necessary to occupy the time of the court with it whereat there was much laughter and his lordship's face was covered with an angry flush later in my address i had a long altercation with his lordship i wanted to show the jury that such heresy as i had published in the freethinker abounded in high-class publications but justice north endeavoured vainly enough to prevent me 
the verbatim report of what occurred is so rich that i give it here instead of a summary version Quote, now gentlemen i told you before that one of the reasons in my opinion why the present prosecution was commenced was that the alleged blasphemous libels were published in a cheap paper and i asked you to bear in mind that there was plenty of heresy in expensive books published at ten shillings twelve shillings and even as much as one pound and more i think i have a right to ask that you have some proof of this statement i think i can show you that similar views are expressed by the leading writers of today not perhaps in precisely the same language for it is not to be expected that the paper which is addressed to the many will be conducted on just the same level either intellectually or aesthetically speaking as a publication in the form of an expensive book which is only intended for men of education intelligence and leisure but such views are put before the public by the most prominent writers of the day you will of course expect to find differences in the mode of expression and as a matter of course differences of taste but i submit that differences of taste affect the question very little unless as i have said they actually lead to breaches of the peace but in a case like this there ought to be no distinction on grounds of taste surely the man who says a thing in one way is not to be punished while the man who says the same thing in another way is to go scot-free you cannot make a distinction between men on grounds of taste i can imagine that if there were a parliament of aesthetic gentlemen and mr oscar wilde were made prime minister some such arrangement as that would find weight before the jury but in the present state of enlightened opinion i do not think that any such arrangement would be accepted by you now gentlemen i shall call your attention first of all to a book which is published by no less a firm than the old and well-established house of longmans the author of the book mr justice north what is the name of the book mr foot the book is the autobiography of john stuart mill mr justice north what are you going to refer to it for mr foot i am going to refer to one page of it my lord mr justice north what for mr foot to show that identical views to those expressed in the cheap paper before the court are expressed in expensive volumes mr justice north i shall not hear anything of that sort i am not trying the question nor are the jury whether the views expressed by other persons are sound or right the question is whether you are guilty of a blasphemous libel i shall direct them that it will be for them to say whether the facts are proved in this case mr foot i will call your attention my lord to the remarks of lord justice coburn in a similar case mr justice north i will hear anything relevant to the subject my reason for asking you was to find out whether you were going to quote a law book mr foot i will quote a verbatim report mr justice north i can hear that mr foot it is the case against charles bradlow and annie besant mr justice north by whom is your report published mr foot it is a verbatim report published by the free thought publishing company the shorthand notes of the full proceedings with the cross-examination and the judgment of the court mr justice north there is no evidence of that did you hear it mr foot i did not personally hear it but my co-defendants did mr justice north 
I will hear you state anything you suggest as being said by Lord Chief Justice Coburn. Mr. Foote. Mrs. Besant was about to read a passage from Tristram Shandy. Mr. Justice North. You have not proved the publication. Mr. Foote. Quite so, my lord, but although this is not formal evidence, and only the report of a case, I thought your lordship would not object to hear it. Mr. Foote here handed in a copy of the report to the judge, and pointed out that the Lord Chief Justice had said he could not prevent Mrs. Besant from committing a passage to memory, or from reading books as if reciting from memory. Mr. Justice North I will allow you to go on, either quoting from memory or reading from the book, but I cannot go into the question of whether this is right or not. Mr. Foote, I am not proposing that. I am only going to show that opinions like those expressed here extensively prevail. Mr. Justice North, that is not the question at all. If they extensively prevail, so much the worse. What somebody else has said, whoever that person may be, cannot affect the question in this case. Mr. Foote, but, my lord, might it not affect the question of whether a jury might not themselves, by an adverse verdict, be far more contributing to a breach of the peace than the publication on which they are asked to adjudicate? Mr. Justice North, I think not, and I shall not do so if I can help it. It is a mere waste of time to attempt to justify anything that has been said in the alleged libel by showing that someone else has said the same thing. Mr. Foote, in all trials the same process has been allowed. Mr. Justice North, it will not be allowed on this occasion. Mr. Foote, if your lordship will pardon me for calling attention to the famous case of the King against William Hone, I would point out that there Hone read extracts to the jury. Mr. Justice North, very possibly it might have been relevant in that case. Mr. Foote, but my lord, it was precisely a similar case. It was a case of blasphemous libel. Lord Ellenborough sat on the bench. Mr. Justice North. Possibly. Mr. Foote. And Lord Ellenborough allowed Mr. Hone to read what he considered justificatory of his own publication. The same thing occurred in the case of the Queen against Bradlow and Besant. Mr. Justice North. We have nothing to do today with the question whether any author has taken the views which are taken in these libels, whoever the author was. Mr. Foote, does your lordship mean that I am to go on reading or not? Mr. Justice North, go on with your address to the jury, sir. That's what I wish you to do. But you cannot do what you were about to do. Refer to the book you mentioned for any such purpose as you indicated. Mr. Foote, I hope your lordship does not misunderstand me. I am simply defending myself against a very grave charge under an old law. Mr. Justice North, Go on, go on, Foote, I know that. Go on with your address. Mr. Foote. Your Lordship, these questions are part of my address. Gentlemen, turning to the jury, no less a person than a brother of one of our most distinguished judges has said, Mr. Justice North, now again I cannot have you quoting books not in evidence for the sake of putting before the jury the matters they state. The passage you refer to is one in which the Lord Chief Justice pointed out that that could not be done. Mr. Foote, but the action, my Lord, of the Lord Chief Justice did not put a stop to the reading. He said he would allow Mrs. Besant to quote any passage as a part of her address. Mr. Justice North, go on. Mr. Foote, 
no less a person than the brother of one of our most learned mr justice north now did i not tell you that you could not do that mr foote will your lordship give me a most distinct ruling in this case mr justice north i am ruling that you cannot do what you are trying to do now mr foote i am sorry my lord i cannot understand mr justice north i am sorry for it i have tried to make myself clear mr foote does your lordship mean that i am not to read from anything to show justification of the libel mr justice north there is no justification in the case the question the jury have to decide is whether you and the persons present with you are guilty of a libel or not for that purpose they will have to consider whether the matters in question are a libel if so they will have also to consider whether you and the other defendants are guilty of having published it if they think it a libel and that you have published it they will have answered the only two questions they will have to put to themselves mr foote my lord in an ordinary libel case justification can be shown mr justice north go on mr foote i do not wish to occupy the time of the court unnecessarily but really i think your lordship ought to remember the grave position in which i stand and not stand in the way of anything which i consider to be of vital importance to my defence mr justice north i have pointed out to you what i consider to be the question the jury have got to decide i hope you will not go outside the lines i have pointed out to you but with these remarks i am very reluctant to interfere with any prisoner saying anything which he considers necessary and i will not stop you i hope you will not abuse the concession i consider i am making to you mr foote i should be very sorry my lord i am only stating what i consider necessary Unquote. this is a very fair specimen of his lordship's manners unfortunately it is also a fair specimen of his lordship's law when i read similar extracts in the court of queen's bench lord coleridge never interrupted me once nay he told the jury that i had very properly brought those passages before their notice that i had a perfect right to do so and that it was a legitimate part of my defence since then i have conversed with many gentlemen who were present some of them belonging to the legal profession and i have heard but one opinion expressed as to george north's conduct they all agree that it was utterly undignified and a scandal to the bench perhaps it had something to do with his lordship's removal a few weeks afterwards to the chancery court where his eccentricities as the daily news remarked at the time will no longer endanger the liberty and lives of his fellow subjects when i cited fox's libel act and asked that my copy purchased from the queen's printers might be handed to the jury for their guidance his lordship sharply ordered the officer not to pass it to them i shall tell them he said what points they have to decide as though i had no right to press my own view he would never have dared to treat a defending counsel in that way and he ought to have known that a defendant in person has all the rights of a counsel the latter having absolutely no standing in court except as far as he represents a first party in a suit may they not have a copy of the act my lord i inquired no replied his lordship they will take the law from the directions i give them not from reading acts of parliament this is directly counter to the spirit and letter of fox's act 
and i suspect that judge north would have expressed himself more guardedly in a higher court if juries have nothing to do with acts of parliament why are statutes enacted judge north would be ashamed and afraid to speak in that way before his superior brother judges at the law courts but at the old bailey he was absolute master of the situation and he abused his power he knew there was no court of criminal appeal and no danger of his being checked by either of the fat aldermen on the bench they were in fact our prosecutors and they appeared to enjoy their paltry triumph as i have said i began my address to the jury at one o'clock and at half-past we adjourned for lunch mr wheeler ran across the road and ordered some refreshment for us and pending its arrival we descended the dock stairs and entered a subterranean passage which was lit by a single gas jet on each side there was a little den with an iron gate one of these was filled with prisoners awaiting trial or sentence who gazed through the bars at us with mingled glee and astonishment they were chatting merrily and i imagine from their free and easy manner that most of them were old jailbirds perhaps there were some forlorn miserable creatures cowering in the darkness behind with throbbing brows and hearts like lead on whose ears the light laughter of their callous companions grated even more harshly than it did on ours the left-hand den was empty and into it we were ushered by the aged janitor who regarded us with looks of mute reproach he was evidently subdued to what he worked in his world consisted of two classes criminals and police and without any further ceremony of trial and sentence the very fact of our descending into his inferno was clear evidence that we belonged to the former class as the den was only illuminated by a few straggling gleams from the gas jet outside we were unable to discriminate any object until our eyes grew accustomed to the gloom while we were in this state of semi-blindness something stirred i wondered whether it was a dog or a rat the doubt was soon resolved a human form reared itself up from the bench against the wall where it had been lying not asleep indeed but half unconscious and to our great surprise it turned out to be mr cattell who had surrendered to his bail at the same time as we did and had been shivering there ever since ten o'clock after we left him he continued shivering for three or four hours longer in that black hole of the old bailey which struck a chill into our very bones even in the brief period of our tenancy and which could hardly be warmed by any conflagration short of the last it appeared damp as well as cold and a sinister effluvium came from a place of necessity at the back six or seven hours incarceration in such a place might injure a strong constitution and seriously damage a weak one surely it is scandalous that unconvicted prisoners some of whom are eventually acquitted should suffer this unnecessary hardship and incur this unnecessary risk presently our lunch arrived the platefuls of meat and vegetables had a savoury smell our appetites were keen and our stomachs empty but a difficulty arose there were forks but no knives those lethal instruments being forbidden lest prisoners should attempt to cut their throats i subsequently had the use of a tin knife in newgate but even that which used to be common in prisons is now prescribed the only carving instruments allowed the gates in her majesty's hotels is a wooden spoon although the tin knife still lingers in the houses of detention 
among other elaborate precautions against suicide i found that the prisoners awaiting trial were furnished with quill pens steel pens had been banished after the desperate exploit of one poor wretch who had stabbed away at his windpipe with one and inflicted such grave injuries that the officials had great difficulty in saving his life but revenons à nos moutons or rather our forks we disposed of the vegetables somehow and as for the meat we were obliged to split and gnaw at it after the fashion of our primitive ancestors we drank out of the mouth of the claret bottle passing it round till it was emptied it was probably a good honest bottle but in the circumstances it seemed a despicable fraud we tried hard for another supply but we failed being anxious to prevent a display of inebriety in the dock or desirous to repress rather than stimulate our audacity the venerable janitor interposed the most effectual obstacles and we were constrained to reason down the remnant of our thirst which if i may infer from my own case was almost as insensible to argument as the judge himself feeling very cold we essayed a little exercise the dimensions of our den which were three steps each way did not allow much play for individuality erratic pedestrianism was clearly dangerous so we rushed around in indian file like braves on the warpath and by way of relieving the tedium we speculated on the number of laps in a mile our proceedings seemed to strike the wild beasts in the opposite den as unaccountable imbecility they grinned at us through the bars with as much delight as children might evince in the zoological gardens at a performance of insane monkeys but their amusement was suddenly arrested saint peter appeared at the gate flourishing his keys it was two o'clock what a strange sensation it was mounting those dock stairs more loudly than my experiences below it said you are a prisoner the court was densely crowded and as i emerged into it the sea of faces suddenly caught en masse seemed cold and alien the feeling was only momentary but i fancy it resembled the weird thrill that must have swept through the ancient captive as he entered the roman arena from his dark lair and confronted the vague host of indifferent faces that were to watch his fight for life i resumed my address to the jury at two o'clock and concluded it at four a considerable portion of that time was spent in altercations with the judge of which i have already given some striking specimens let me now give another it excited great laughter in court and i confess the situation was so comic that i could scarcely preserve my own gravity after quoting a number of blasphemous passages from the writings of professor clifford lord amberley matthew arnold and the author of the evolution of christianity swinburne byron and shelley i proceeded thus quote, now gentlemen i have given you a few illustrations of permitted blasphemy in expensive books and i will now trouble you with a few instances of permitted blasphemy in cheap publications which are unmolested because they call themselves christian and because those who conduct them are patronized by ecclesiastical dignitaries unquote. here i produced a copy of the war cry in which i had marked a piece of idiotic blasphemy judge north scented mischief and gestured to the officer behind me but that functionary was too deeply interested in the case to make much haste and not wishing to be frustrated i read as rapidly as i could before he could arrest me i had finished the extract 
my auditors were all convulsed with laughter except the judge who was convulsed with rage as soon as he could articulate he addressed me as follows mr justice north now foot i am going to put a stop to this i will not allow any more of these illustrations of what you call permitted blasphemy in cheap publications i decline to have any more of them put before me mr foot my lord i will use them for another purpose if you will allow me mr justice north you will not use them here at all sir mr foot may they not be used my lord to show that an equally free use of religious symbols and religious language prevails widely in all classes of literature and society mr justice north no they may not i decline to hear them read they are not in evidence and i refuse to allow you to quote from such documents as part of your speech mr foot well gentlemen i will now ask your attention very briefly to another branch of the subject the fact is i was perfectly satisfied i had purposely kept the war cry till the last it naturally ended my list of citations and his lordship's victory was entirely specious those who may wish to read my address in its entirety will find it in the three trials for blasphemy for those however who are not so curious or so painstaking i give here the peroration only to show what sentiments i appeal to in the breasts of the jury and how far my defence was from boastfulness or civility Quote, gentlemen i told you at the outset that you are the last court of appeal on all questions affecting the liberty of the press and the right of free speech and free thought when i say free thought i do not refer to specific doctrines that may pass under that name i refer to the great right of free thought that free thought which is neither so low as a cottage nor so lofty as a pyramid but is like the soaring azure vault of heaven which overarches both with equal ease i ask you to affirm the liberty of the press to show by your verdict that you are prepared to give to others the same freedom that you claim for yourselves i ask you not to be misled by the statements that have been thrown out by the prosecution nor by the authority and influence of the mighty and rich corporation which commenced this action has found the money for it and whose very solicitor was bound over to prosecute i ask you not to be influenced by these considerations but rather to remember that this present attack is made upon us probably because we are connected with those who have been struck at again and again by some of the very persons who are engaged in this prosecution to remember that england is growing day by day in its humanity and love of freedom and that as blasphemy has been an offence less and less proceeded against during the past century so there will probably be fewer and fewer proceedings against it in the next indeed there may never be another prosecution for blasphemy and i am sure you would not like to have it weigh on your minds that you were the instruments of the last act of persecution that you were the last jury who sent to be caged like wild beasts men against whose honesty there has been no charge i am quite sure you will not allow yourselves to be made the agents of sending such men to herd with the lowest criminals and to be subjected to all the indignities such punishment involves i am sure you will send me as well as my co-defendants back to our homes and friends who do not think the worse of us for the position in which we stand 
that you will send us back to them unstained giving a verdict of not guilty for me and my co-defendants instead of a verdict of guilty for the prosecution and thus as english juries have again and again done before vindicate the glorious principle of the freedom of the press against all the religious and political factions that may seek to impugn it for their own ends Unquote. the court officials could not stifle the burst of applause that greeted my peroration i had flung all my books and papers aside and faced the jury i spoke in passionate accents my expression and gestures were doubtless full of that dramatic power which comes of earnest sincerity i felt every sentiment i uttered and i believe i made the jury feel it too for they were visibly impressed and their emotion was obviously shared by the crowd of listeners who represented the greater jury of public opinion mr ramsay followed me with a speech which he read from manuscript it occupied half an hour in delivery it was terse and vigorous, and it really covered most of the ground in debate. I listened to it with pleasure as an admirable summary of our position, but it lost much of its force in being read instead of spoken extemporaneously, and its very virtues as a paper were its defects as an address. The points wanted elaboration. Before they had fairly mastered one argument, the jury were hurried on to another mr ramsay is by no means incapable of making a forcible speech and i think he should have trusted to his power of improvisation there was no need for a long effort he might have concentrated himself on a few salient points of our defence and pressed them on the jury with all his might his own sentiments naturally expressed in homely language would have had a greater effect than any literary composition after an experience of three trials i would give this advice to every man who has to defend himself before a jury on a charge of blasphemy or sedition write out on a sheet of paper the heads of your defence number them in the order you think they should be treated so that your address may have a logical continuity fill in your subdivisions similarly numbered under the chief heads beginning the lines halfway across the page so as to catch the eye readily think every clause out carefully fix every illustration in your mind until it becomes almost a fact of memory don't write out fine passages and try to remember them verbally write nothing it will only confuse you unless you have long practised that method when you have systematised your thoughts and think your written arrangement is complete ponder it ponder it clause by clause with the paper at hand for constant reference no matter if your thoughts seem to wander and the subject appears to grow vague your mind is dwelling on it and ideas will fructify in your mind unconsciously as seeds sprout in the dark when the hour of trial arrives arm yourself with the familiar paper trust to your own courage and speak out you will have thoughts and nature will find you words justice north's summing up was simply a clever and unscrupulous bit of special pleading sir harding gifford had left the court and his friend on the bench conducted his case for him he told the jury that i had wasted their time and indulged in a number of other insults which might be pardonable in a legal hack bent on earning his client's fee but were scarcely consistent with the dignity and impartiality of a judge his tone was even worse than his words he had no sympathy with us in our desperate effort to defend our liberty against such overwhelming odds, nor did he solicit any. 
but we had a right to expect him to refrain from constant expressions of antipathy that however was not the whole of his offence against the rules of justice he recurred to the bad old example of lord ellenborough in devoting most of his time to answering my arguments lord coleridge remarked in the court of queen's bench that such a task was not for the judge but for the counsel on the other side of the case i wish his lordship had read a lesson to justice north on that subject before he presided at our trial there is only one passage of his summing up that i wish to criticise fully it contains his statement of the law of blasphemy but as he made a very different statement four days later on at our second trial i prefer to wait until by placing these discrepant utterances together i can give the reader a fair idea of justice north's authority as a legal oracle the jury retired at five o'clock justice north kept his seat probably fancying they would soon agree to a verdict of guilty but as the minutes went by and the result seemed after all dubious he resorted to a paltry trick notwithstanding the late hour he had mr cattell brought into the dock for trial by procuring a verdict against him our jury might be influenced according to theory of course the jury hold no communication with the world while in deliberation but it is well known that officers of the court have access to them and tidings of mr cattell's fate could be easily conveyed we stepped down the stairs out of sight but not out of hearing and made way for mr cattell to take our place in the dock he was very pale with cold and apprehension and too timid to take a seat he stood with his hands resting on the top ledge the evidence against him was very brief instead of defending himself he had employed counsel that gentleman admitted the horrible character of the publication so eloquently denounced by the learned judge he said that his client could not for a moment think of defending it in fact he had only sold it in ignorance and he would never repeat the offence on the ground of that ignorance and that promise it was hoped that the judge would return a verdict of not guilty mr cattell declares he never instructed his counsel to say anything of the kind but all i know is that it was said and that while our cheeks were tingling with shame and indignation he heard it all without a word of protest judge north acted openly as counsel for the prosecution in this trial there was not the slightest disguise he took the case completely into his own hands examined and cross-examined his summing up was a disgusting exhibition naturally enough the jury returned a verdict of guilty without leaving the box but sentence was deferred until after our jury had also agreed by this time i felt convinced they would not agree and every minute strengthened my belief while they deliberated we were all conducted to the subterranean den where we kept each other in good spirits saint peter brought us some water to drink in a dirty tin can we tasted it found that a little of it was more than enough and declined to hazard a further experiment on our health at last after two hours and ten minutes waiting we were summoned back to the dock there was profound silence in court and as the jury filed into their seats a painful sense of expectation pervaded the assembly his lordship said that he had called them into court to see whether he could assist them in any way and especially by explaining the law to them again 
the foreman in a very quiet composed manner replied that they all understood the law but there was no chance of their agreeing his lordship invited them to try a further consultation to which the foreman replied that it would be useless then said his lordship i am very sorry to say i must discharge you and have the case tried again then turning to the clerk of arraigns he added i will attend here on monday and try the case again with a different jury this was against the ordinary rule of the court and the sessions had to be prolonged into the next week for our sakes but his lordship could not deny himself the luxury of sentencing us he had set his heart on sending us to jail and would not be balked we naturally expected to be liberated till monday and i formally applied for a renewal of our bail but his lordship refused my application in the most peremptory and insulting manner i pointed out that i should require a proper opportunity to prepare another defence for the second trial to which his lordship replied you will have the same opportunity then that you have now he then hurriedly left the bench and we were in custody of the governor of newgate several friends rushed forward to shake hands with us over the dock rail and there were loud cries of bravo jury presently we descended to the inferno again from which we were conducted by a long subterranean passage to newgate prison judge north's action was simply vindictive even if we were guilty our offence was only a misdemeanour we had been out on bail from the beginning of the prosecution we had duly surrendered to trial after the jury's disagreement we really stood in a better position than before and there was not the slightest reason to suppose that we might abscond on the other hand it was clear that we were fighting against long odds the rich city corporation was prosecuting us regardless of expense and their case was conducted by three of the most skilful lawyers in london reason justice and humanity alike demanded that we should enjoy freedom and comfort while marshalling our resources for a fresh battle judge north however thought otherwise in his opinion we required a different kind of opportunity he locked us up in a prison cell excluded us from light and air deprived us of all communication with each other and debarred us from all intercourse with the outside world except during fifteen minutes each day through an iron grating such malignity is an unpardonable crime in a judge there may have been some bad criminals in newgate when i entered it but i would rather have embraced the worst of them than have touched the hand of judge north End of chapter seven